I'm Margaret Mueller, President and CEO of the Executives Club of Chicago, Chicago region's top business forum. Join me on the Executives Exchange as we go deep with some of the most successful executives from the Chicago region and unlock the keys to their success. Trust me, you're going to want to hear this. On today's episode of the Executives Exchange, we welcome Alice Waters, chef and owner of Chez Panisse, with guest host Paul Kahn, executive chef and partner at One-Off Hospitality. Alice recalls her journey to launch Chez Panisse and rebuild people's connection with their food. Tune in to discover more about the Edible Schoolyard Project and the slow food movement. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at Avec River North. First of all, welcome uh, to this beautiful, beautiful space to all of you. Uh, I'm going to start off by saying that, you know, when they talk about anything, when you go out to a table as a chef or in public speaking, you're never supposed to admit that you're scared. <laughs> I'm freaking out. Okay, so let's just start off with that. What are you uh, I'm teasing. About? I'm not. I'm not scared about anything. Um, it was all a big lie. Yeah. Um, so I would just like to start with a personal introduction of uh, how Chez Panisse came into my life. Uh, I think Alice and I have known each other for maybe 10 or 12, 15 years, something like that, um, and keep in touch. And uh, I get these beautiful handwritten uh, Chez Panisse cards. It's always an incredible highlight. But that being said, my first cooking job uh, was at a little place at the corner of North and Wells called Metropolis Cafe for a chef named Erwin Dreschler. I don't know how, to, how many of you remember that. It was about 1986. Um, I think it was a seminal restaurant because we cooked in that kitchen with our hearts and the food was delicious. And in the back teeny office, there was a shelf of cookbooks. Um, and amongst the 20 or so cookbooks were two, uh, the Chez Panisse menu cookbook and the Chez Panisse pizza, pasta, and calzone book. So I was obsessed with those books uh, and as I was obsessed with Alice Waters from the very beginning. Fast forward seven or eight years, I had the opportunity to go into business with a very renowned and wonderful chef in Chicago, I'm not going to mention any names, uh, but in the 11th hour I decided to forge out on my own. And once again, I was freaked out. Um, and uh, you know, met my wonderful business partners, but before that I decided to take a trip um, and sort of sow my wild oats. So with a college buddy, we jop, jumped a freight train, uh, the Burlington Northern um, in Naperville, and rode all the way to Spokane, Washington, where we were promptly arrested. Uh, from there, uh, it was Paola, from there, we uh, hitchhiked. Uh, my friend uh, departed to go to Alaska to teach a National Outdoor Leadership School on the Brooks Range, and I continued, uh, hitchhiked uh, to Olympic National Park and then down the coast. And when I found, my, found myself in Berkeley visiting a friend doing laundry, I thought, oh my God, I actually, cover your ears, oh my fucking God, I can go to Chez Panisse. Uh, and I did, and I went there by myself and had lunch. Uh, and that was really uh, the start of a real love affair with ingredients, um, farm to table, simple cooking, and really sort of outlined my career moving forward. Um, fast forward to 97 when we opened Blackbird. Um, that allowed me to go on a honeymoon with my wife, finally, uh, my wife of almost 35 years. Uh, we finished our trip um, with a dinner at the dining room at Chez Panisse. So that's, that's what Chez Panisse is to me uh, and so much more. Um, and it really has been a, a roadmap to my passion, which I think has driven my success. So that brings me to the first question, Alice. Um, how have you turned your incredible passion and vision into such sweeping success? Well, I first have to say I didn't know we had a hitchhiking pass. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go out on the road again. 
that when I first went to France, I would uh, take the metro out to the end, and I'd go right out on the street with my girlfriend and put our thumbs out and get picked up by the most amazing people that said, you know, we know where that little restaurant you'd like to eat in, in Brittany is. And, and that, it's a kind of trust that was so beautiful back in the 60s and 70s where you, you really felt like you were able to meet people. <laughs> uh, just and not get them. killed. And not get killed. Every time. No, but there was this confidence. Yep. We had it. They were so pleased to know us. But I guess I've always loved doing what I do. And I've never, I've never wanted to do it for the money. I just figured if it didn't make money, well, then I'd do something else. But I, I just wanted it to be how I wanted it to be. And I didn't know at the beginning whether we would make it or not. <laughs> but um, I had some great partners, and we did it together. So on your terms, from, from start to now? To now. 100%. 51 years. Wow. 52 in August. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, let's cut, cut right to the chase. I, I think, you know, obviously, uh, I can remember from the first time uh, you and I walked the Green City Market in Chicago. Um, you talked about uh, diversity of incredible biodiversity. You talked about organic, 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 organic. Um, and I was kind of like, well, we're not quite there in Chicago. Uh, Berkeley's way ahead of us. We're, we're making incredible strides. But I just go to uh, Slow Food, um, your relationship with Slow Food, why it's so important, and, and, and how uh, maybe Slow Food has taken us to the point where we're at now, you know, through the last couple of difficult years in the pandemic. Um, I think it's been really important, but we'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think uh, at the beginning, when I started the restaurant, I was looking for taste. I had eaten in France, and it was really, really important, that flavor. And ultimately, it took a couple years searching, but I ended up at the doorsteps of all the organic people in California. And that movement is over 50 years old. Um, and we always had Patagonia and a whole group of people that were espousing the same values. But I, I, it just was connecting with these farmers that really made Chez Panisse what it is. And I knew that it was not just about health. It was about local ripeness of food. That's what it really was. And it was interesting because my father thought he had moved out to, to California. He was a business psychologist. And he thought, here I was trying to make this thing work. And he said, the problem is that you need 
a farm of your own. And he says, I'm going to spend the next eight months traveling around with this list from UC Davis. Meet these farmers and see who would like to have a direct relationship with Shepanese. Well, he came back and he had three, but he said, only one is crazy enough to work with you. <laughs> <laughs> he went to Bob Kennard's farm and he couldn't find the vegetables. He said, where are, where are they? Bob says, come on over here. And he pulled back the sort of high weeds and pulled up a carrot. <laughs> and he said, my carrot is 10 times more nutritious than anybody else's. And I said, sure, Bob. Uh, and come to find out 25, 30 years later, it was because he was farming not just biodynamically, but regeneratively, which is this very important way of farming that people have been doing since the beginning of time. But we're just discovering it and using that term. But it means allowing the plant to have all the little bugs and all the things that are in the soil to help it be as nutritious as it can be. And so you're not plowing the land, you're just, you're allowing all of the weeds, the things. And I, I have to say, Bob totally educated us during this period of time. He would, he would bring us uh, nettles and say, use them. What? And we made this nettle pizza with garlic and olive oil. <laughs> and it's like the biggest success in the restaurant. Everybody wants to eat a stinging nettle. <laughs> and, but it was not just that. It was his understanding of the big picture of farming and, and how to address, that addresses climate and health. So uh, we became committed and once everybody else heard that we pay the top price for everything we bought and we don't ask for a wholesale price, we come and pick it up or they bring it to us. All of a sudden, we had a network of about 75 people that wanted to sell to us directly. And it was wonderful because, you know, Mas Masumoto had its peaches. He got all its peaches, but when peaches were over, they were over. And we were on to Frog Hollow apples. And then those apples so were jealous. gone. And it's just, what? I'm so jealous. No, but you can do this wherever you are. And in this country, believe it or not, we never bought food that was from any place else but nearby. And I lived in New Jersey, so it was a nice cold climate. And sadly, my mother wasn't a good cook. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah, <laughs> but, but you knew she cared about health, she did. But 
Um, in the wintertime, we ate entirely differently than in the spring or the summer. Those were very distinct times. Of course, we love summer because of tomatoes and corn in New Jersey. But we practiced that like religiously at Shepanese. And I do believe it's what has allowed us this long life. Because just when we're just tired of something, there's no more. And we go on to the next thing. And everybody who comes to the restaurant is eating differently. And we only had one menu downstairs. You may know that. And, and, and nobody thought we could succeed. And I was determined to prove them wrong. And I have. And it's because they're introduced to things that they've never tasted before. And they're, they're liking them. And uh, we always, at this time of year, give a little bowl of fruit bowl at the end with Kishu mandarins in it. Do you know those? Mm -mm. Oh, I'm sending you a box. <laughs> oh, you know, a lot of chefs say they're going to do that, Alison. They don't do it. I, I, it's all I've about follow-through. You heard it. You heard it. No, but, but uh, they're so delicious. It's a little mandarin that is totally easy to peel, this big, mm. and totally sweet. And they grow down in the Ojai Valley in California. I hate California. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just for a tiny period of time, about a month. Mm -hmm. But they're so tasty that I started sending a box of these to anybody who I needed their help in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and so I would send this box, and I called it Kishu Diplomacy. <laughs> and they'd eat one. And everybody wrote me a message back. They were so wonderful. I, I won't forget you. Was it because the citrus was so good or because you're Alice Waters? <laughs> no, it was because <laughs> of the taste. And so to, uh, Justice Sotomayor just wrote me last week and said, where are the <laughs> So this works. It's feeding people an idea. And that is what I've tried to do for all these years is to really cook something and gather people like today to talk about it. Because it is a central experience eating. Mm -hmm. And when I wrote this, well, I'm just going on. What's your second question? Oh, please quest? go on. <laughs> you're making my job easy. You know, I was going to say what you were talking about now was another uh, Alice Waters memory for me. My wife uh, knew how passionate I was about Chez Panisse, and she uh, wrote to NPR to get a copy of an interview uh, that you did, and we were, the family was all sitting around at Christmas cooking, you know, fooling around doing what they do, and she put the cassette, that's how long ago it was, she put the cassette on, and I was like, oh my God, this interview with Alice Waters, it's playing at Christmas time, and it was, it was part of her Christmas present to me, but what you were talking about has stuck with me for all these years, and I... I I speak of it often, and it's about the importance of food. Is It's the person sitting across the table from you. It's about the communication. It's about that love. And so often with food in, in our restaurant community, that gets overlooked. It's yep. about 
you know, forgive me, but it's about the tweezers and it's about the finesse and it's about the ego. And for us, hopefully everyone in our company, it's about the love and it's about the person sitting across from you and it's about the flavor. And so it's another uh, lesson that I, I've learned from you. But, um, you know, speaking of good taste, I hope you guys are enjoying anything, everything. And I do want to say that um, as much um, is, uh, of the product is from a, a few blocks from here. The mushrooms are grown in the neighborhood. Uh, the, the, the flour in Greg's bread is, is uh, sourced from Marty Spence, from uh, Marty Travis from Spence Farm, and on and on and on. So we, we, we do our best. It's a little trickier in Chicago, but we live that every day. But with that, I do want to make sure that I give thanks to uh, the three chefs that were involved in your lunch. Um, Natalie Saban, our pastry chef, wonderful. Um, Greg, <laughs> Natalie. Greg Wade, our, our awesome baker. Um, I think, he, is he here or is he back at the bakery? He's stuck out, yep. He's back at the bakery, he's doing something, something with bread. Uh, and then Dylan Patel, who's the chef for all the events. So, love you guys, wonderful job. Um, I hope everyone's enjoying your lunch so far. The best lunch at an event like this that you will ever have. Um, thanks, you guys. Um, th th that all being said, um, you know, I'd like to go to the converse of what you were talking about earlier and, and touch on big ag and industrial farming and uh, the impact, um, how that may relate to these business owners that are in the room. Um, just some of your thoughts. I mean, and most of it is counterintuitive, intuitive, um, you know what I mean. Um, it just makes sense from what you've talked about so far. Um, but specifically, I'd like to hear from you, um, you know, why industrial farming is uh, such a danger to us moving forward. Well, I didn't stump you, did I? <laughs> I can give you the trick, I can give you the, the fun question if you yes, want. Yes, please. Uh, the fun question is, you know, I was doing a pop-up with this great young man named Sebastian White. He uh, has a foundation called the Evolve Network. It's um, all about um, uh, mental health. Um, it's geared towards uh, inner city kids. Um, he's a terrific young man that's doing something incredible for Chicago. Um, we were doing this pop-up at Dove's Art Restaurant and we were in the kitchen and I said, I'm really nervous, I'm freaked out. I'm moderating a conversation with Alice Waters later in the week and he just looked at me with a dumbfounded look. Who's Alice Waters? He's 22 years old. And you know, uh, Brian, our culinary director, uh, has said 30% of the people in our kitchen, sorry Alice, don't know who Alice Waters is. They don't even know who I am for that matter. Um, and they work for me. But that being said, it's, it's our job to educate those children, those young, young cooks and young culinarians, um, and teach them. Um, but, oh, I lost my train of thought. Oh, the question. So the question was, um, Mount Rushmore of culinary in America, four heads. One is obviously Alice Waters. For the life of us, we couldn't figure out who the other three were. So I wanted to see if you could figure out who's going to round out the Mount Rushmore. I know it's a hard question, but well, certainly I should have just let you keep talking. Julia Child. And yeah, that was my number two. And Jacques Pepin. Jacques Pepin, that was my number three. Uh, that was your number three. Who's four? Oh, who's four? Who is four? I don't know. Uh, we were just throwing <laughs> names around. No. Um, uh, I mean, for me, uh, did, Jeremiah Tower worked for you, didn't he? Didn't he? No, no, silence. He'd, um, <laughs> not uh, on Rush, Mount Rushmore. <laughs> oh, no, not on Mount Rushmore. No, but I think of, uh, I think of 
influential cooks to me, and probably my favorite is, was Edna Lewis. Uh, really, uh, she belongs there. And what she taught me um, was pretty extraordinary. I loved when she was invited to come to a big conference of Southern Foodways. She wanted to bring her cow so that she could milk it and have fresh cream. Okay, that's Edna. And she came for many years. We did Meals on Wheels in New York City. And there she would be making all of the uh, raspberry pies herself, rolling the dough, making that happen. And everybody else had 10 people helping and doing Where did she live? Where was that? She the was right there doing it herself. But I just look back in her books whenever I want to know about an ingredient. Um, she just had this biodiversity understanding from having a huge farm, from having, I think she uh, raised pheasants in New Jersey for a restaurant in, in New York. But she came to our uh, 30th birthday party at Chez Panisse. Oh, the 40th. Was it the 40th at the Campanile at UC Berkeley? Wow. But she was one of the honored guests, and she has to be up there. There you have it. That's, you really helped me out there, because I was losing sleep <laughs> over that question. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor, Sure. Audio equipment for the Executives Exchange podcast is provided by Sure Incorporated. When your team is depending on you for information and motivation, you can't afford to sound anything less than clear and confident. For nearly 100 years, performers and world leaders have depended on Shure microphones. Whether you're in front of a camera or behind a podium, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. Welcome back. Um, you know, l l let's, let's go right to education. Let's talk about the Edible Schoolyard. Um, I, would, I would just say that um, I've drawn um, a ton of inspiration from, from what, what you're doing. We've had several conversations about it. I think uh, there are so many similarities, um, curriculum-based education to change the way kids think and eat and learn. Um, and it's, it's really a miracle. And um, it, that's, to me, that's the reason why you're on the Mount Rushmore uh, <laughs> amongst others. Uh, but it's very, very inspirational to, to us and our organization in Chicago Pilot Light. Um, you know, the feeling that you get from um, sitting down and talking with a child that's been through the program and how they found inspiration through food um, is really what I think ultimately is going to make Chicago a better place and our world a better place. And yeah. so I'd, I'd love to hear how the Edible Schoolyard started and, and where you're at and where you're going. And I'll just sit back and be quiet. Going all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you that I have two big influences on my life. And one of them was being a Montessori teacher. I went and was trained in London. And um, she was concerned at the end of the last century, the century before, actually, in the 1880s in Italy. She was the first woman doctor. And she wanted to know why children 
that were living in poverty and hunger could not learn as easily as other children. And she came to the conclusion that they were sensorily deprived. They didn't have an opportunity to see beautiful things. They didn't have, they weren't hearing, listening carefully. They weren't touching and tasting things that smelled good. And she made up this whole pedagogy to address that. And she worked in the slums of Naples and in India. And um, she came up with this pedagogy that taught children how to use their senses and therefore their minds. Those are our pathways into our mind. Well, it became a way of thinking about everything for me. And when I even opened the restaurant, I wanted it to smell good. That's why I put in a pizza oven. I wanted it to look good. I always cared about lighting. I cared about the, the music that was played. I wanted people to see the beauty of the food on the plate, to use their hands to peel that kishu, because I knew that that would help them remember Shebanese and would open their minds in this way. Well, we live in a sensorily deprived world. We're all on our computers, cell phones. We're eating however we're eating in front of, you know, computer. We are not using our senses. And so I've always had this in my mind that this is what we need to bring into the schools. And when the principal of a middle school, Martin Luther King Middle School in Berkeley, called me up uh, 27 years ago, and he said, uh, would you come over and beautify our school? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, it looks kind of, I heard you on a radio interview and you were saying, what happened to the public schools? Why do they have chain link fences around them? What, what's going on? And, and so would you come over? Well, I went over. And this was Neil Smith, the principal. And we started walking around the school that was built in uh, 1917 on 20 acres of land for 500 students, okay? And then in that period of time, most of the land was taken over by the city. It has 1,000 students, sixth, 7th, and 8th graders. And I said, I, Neil, I have the vision. <laughs> and he said, what, what? And I said, well, we'll make a kitchen and garden classroom 
not to teach gardening or cooking, per se, but to teach all the academic subjects. And I see a big garden out there on this vacant lot that was all full of garbage. I see the garden out there. And then I want you to dig up all of the flat top out there. <laughs> and I can see a new cafeteria that could be built where all the students sit down and eat together real food, organic food. And he said, beautiful idea, Alice, I'll give you a call. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> and he said, we're ready. And I said, Neil, it's all or nothing. All the way or nothing. And he said, it's all the way. But just be quiet about the free organic school lunch right now, because it's going to frighten people. <laughs> So I said, okay, I'll not talk about that, but I have to bring in teachers that are really passionate about food and gardening because they need to be teaching these classes and they are not certified, you know, uh, to the curriculum teachers. But they will teach to the curriculum. And he said, whatever you want to do. So we did that, and I have to say, and I have a map. Love this map. This map is what happened. People came and learned about it. We had a proof of concept. It is in, turn around the other side first, 6,200 schools around the world. <laughs> And I have not visited all 6,200, <laughs> but I have been to the six schools that we wanted to know whether it had proof of concept in terms of temperature, I mean climate, in terms of ages, and in terms of cultures. So we started one in LA, big city, with Suzanne Gowen, uh, the restaurateur. And then we did one in New Orleans. Um, and then we did one in North Carolina uh, at a kind of Montessori museum that serves uh, uh, food in one of classes. And we did one in Brooklyn, and we did one in way upstate New York where it was really cold. Well, I'd just like to say that all of those places have really flourished in all different ways. And they always inspire when I go and visit. The kids made up a song in New Orleans that they sing on the way out to the garden. And the first thing they wanted to do was not to build the garden. They wanted to have a project in the neighborhood that connected all of those people around the school with what they were going to do. So they did a picking up garbage project, cleaned up the whole neighborhood, and invited them to come to the school. So it's, it's about building community without any question. But I can say definitively, 
definitively. If kids grow it and cook it, they all eat it. I always say six weeks to kill. <laughs> but, but it's absolutely the truth. If they only grow it or they only cook it, 95% eat it. And so this means that all of these ideas about offering choice is not what is meaningful. It is the connection with the food, the people at the table, because there are three tables in the edible schoolyard kitchen that have about 12 people, students at each table. And they all have the same recipe. And maybe it's cooking food from the Middle East. They're learning a geography class. And they're making hummus and pita bread and greens. But each table, they have the same recipe. But it tastes different at each table. They liked more spice there. They put more something. It was just so amazing to see the pride that they had in what they were doing. I'm just dying to really get some way of reaching out to all the students that have been at King over the years. So it's 26,000 kids that have taken that class. But it's also the same in the garden, the same connection, that sense of I put that seed in and it grew and wow, kale. So I say that, but one of the most amazing revelations to me for the whole time I've been involved was that we had to plant a cover crop to take the poisons out of the soil. So we planted fava beans, fava beans through the whole area. And guess what? You can eat the fava beans after they've taken it all out. They're, they're no purified. Way. Yes. <laughs> way. <laughs> I didn't believe it, <laughs> but you can. You know, the, the thing that's so rewarding is not only do kids, um, you know, learn about food and, uh, you know, what you're talking about allows them to learn, but it, it makes them see what people in other cultures and other communities exactly. uh, do. It makes them more accepting. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's incredible, and we've seen it with Pilot Light so many times, these heartwarming stories of children that just sitting down and talking and learning about food and tasting, they understand why uh, someone in another culture doesn't eat certain things, and they accept it. Um, it but they, it just, they're curious about it. Yeah. I mean, when you roll your own sushi, you say, is this, this is what they do in Japan? They do it like that? But you become very interested yeah. in that place. How do you eat with chopsticks? You know, it's, it builds that, that into their big picture of edible education. It's a way, I mean, this is what we all have in common. So we're teaching the values of humanity. And that's why we have 6,200 schools on, on that, uh, that network, 
is yeah. because these are common values. And I, I just can't help but think that my parents had a victory garden during World War II. How many families had victory gardens in this room? I'm, I'm just curious. Nobody? Parents? Anybody else? Just one? Oh, several. There's more. But my, my parents had that garden, and they were given a pamphlet by the government to tell them how to farm, what to farm in that cold climate of New Jersey. And when I went back to read some of those pamphlets from Washington, D.C., because we're oh working on a program oh there, 26 different varieties of strawberries. Who knew? Our biodiversity has completely shrunk. But the taste of those strawberries, those Mara de Bois <laughs> strawberries, is just, you know, is in my mind. And that's the beauty of it. You know, uh, I, I want to hear a little bit about the future and, and the, oh, the yes. institute that you heard about. I have but a plan. First, uh, a question. <laughs> you, were talking about, you were talking about sensory. Do you, I remember, uh, I mean, my wife and I on our honeymoon, we closed the dining room with Chez Panisse, we were the last ones there. Did they burn herbs every night at the end of the night, or was it, <laughs> did they cook something that's really stunk and they had to clean it out? I think so. All right, just chuck it. <laughs> no, but it's, uh, <laughs> uh, I wrote a children's book called Fanny at Chez Panisse, and people ask me a lot about, it doesn't bring a lot of smoke in the restaurant if you're burning rosemary and walking around <laughs> yeah. to perfume to make it feel like the south of France. And actually, it can make it a little smoking. <laughs> I thought, ma I thought the maybe they were trying to uh, rid it of the uh, ghost of Jeremiah Tower. <laughs> um, anywho, um, t tell us about the, the institute. You showed me. Yes, well, I uh, decided to actually, this was right before the pandemic, um, that the way that we can make big change in public schools is to come in through the cafeteria door. Because school lunch is the place where all kids eat or should for free. And it could be an amazing place to teach. I, I, I tried to make, think about making school lunch an academic subject. So you have a placemat with all of the, the foods that you're going to be eating from another country. Or you, I mean, it could be a music class and somebody is playing. I think we music stole those from you, the placemats. The Just so that you could get academic minutes because everybody's so obsessed about the waste of time to eat. Give them 20 minutes to grab something. So I thought if it could be an academic subject. But as the pandemic hit, um, I knew that our schools were in trouble. And the only place where we could experiment with procurement of food would be at the University of California. Because there are 10 campuses, they're spread around the whole state of California. They could be a place where we could train uh, food service directors, 
where we could really engage in a way that would be inspiring and understanding, again, the same idea of buying the food directly from the people who grow it or produce it. And so I had the good luck to have Janet Napolitano come to my backyard. I fed her this idea and said, could the procurement of food for the UC system be part of carbon neutrality for 2025? And she paused and she said, I don't know why not. <laughs> and I nearly fell over. I said, would you tell this to the Board of Regents when you leave office? And she did. Wow. And that began the relationship between sort of the Edible Schoolyard Project and the University of California and their procurement people. And we decided, uh, kind of at the same time, uh, the University of California at Davis asked me if I wanted to build a, an institute for regenerative agriculture and edible education. Okay. And I said yes. <laughs> so, so it began in that way. And I wanted this to be a beautiful place. And I started working with an architect whose father had designed Chez with us, <laughs> and whose favorite architecture book was A Pattern Language, which I love, Christopher Alexander's book. And we wanted to build an institute at Aggie Square of the University of Davis, which is in Sacramento. And it was very fortuitous to have the governor there, and all of his people who have been working on farm to school for a very long period of time. And they, the missing piece is how do you cook affordable food and how do you support the farmers? I call it school-supported agriculture because it's like community-supported agriculture because we want to take care of the farmer and learn from the farmer by all of the food that he or she is growing. And so that is what we did at Chez and it's what we wanted to experiment with at King. We built the cafeteria to feed all the kids sitting down and then the superintendent of schools took it and decided to make all of the food for the whole district, 17 schools, right there on the King campus. So it's very difficult to work on this in the public schools K through 12. I know about things that people have been doing all around the country. It's very hard. And that's why I wanted the brilliance of the University of California to shout this out across the country and around the world. They've done it before. 
I was there at the free speech movement. <laughs> I think they got to get in touch with the University of Chicago. Yeah. I don't yes, know. But it's, <laughs> hey, I'll come. But I'm very interested in making a model. I have only done two models in my life. One was at one school in Berkeley, and the other was one restaurant in Berkeley. Oops, I just started a little place that's part of the University of California <laughs> at, uh, in LA at the Hammer Museum. And I did that not because I wanted another restaurant at all, but I wanted a place to feed the people at UCLA this idea. And fortunately, my good friend David Tannis, who you may know from the New York Times, he said, I'll do it. And he's done it. <laughs> and it's a year old right now. But we wanted to buy all the food, again, regeneratively and locally, and show that we could make a statement about that and really talk the idea to the powers that be. Hey, Els, um, so inspirational, so incredible, thank you. Um, I, I wanted to, you know, there's a, I call them O's, there's a lot of O's in the room right now, COOs, CEOs, OO, <laughs> whatever, a lot, a lot, a lot of uh, giants of industry, if you will, leaders of industry. I mean, what you've talked about is so inspirational to me. How, how would you um, put that in terms of um, people running uh, big companies? Um, how can it be, how can, how can the approach be framed to make a difference um, in our world at this point? Well, one thing I'm talking about a lot is, and I actually was asked this question at an international meeting of folks at, what is that big corporation with the highest building in San Francisco? Oh, Salesforce. Salesforce. <laughs> They asked me the question, what would you change in our company if you had one thing? And I said, lunch. <laughs> I think you should sit together like this at lunch. And See I- See you guys tomorrow. <laughs> no, but that you should get to know everybody. And it's not just for the most important people, it's for everybody who's working there, whether they be a dishwasher or whether they be whatever, that we need to sit together. And I spent a lot of time at the American Academy in Rome because that institution was built to have interdisciplinary conversations. And for most of its history, 40, 50 years, they had bad cafeteria food, so none of them came to the table. And uh, uh, it's only in the last 15 years that they had an enlightened director who called and asked me if I would come and change the food. <laughs> but the first day, half the people came, and the second day, everybody, and they never left. For again, this is the proof that they do want to eat what we're serving together. And they stay for like two hours at the table. 
in Rome. And it's so, uh, it's so much proof that, that almost the eating together is as important to what is on the plate. And, and to know those farmers who are putting it on the plate for you. They all know the name of all the people <laughs> who bring the food to the American Academy. And as do everybody at Chez Panisse, I'm sure you see the names of the farmers and the ranchers so that you can verify what we're doing or that they can go and find those farmers for themselves. Wow. Um, so inspirational, such, such an incredible honor. But just to yeah. end that little Hit me with other it. thing, know about the corporations because it's very important to investigate what people are really doing. Because people say that they are, and I found out that they are not. <laughs> so it's so great to go and see the place where everything is produced, how they treat the people who work there, how how they talk about why they're doing what they're doing. Are their values embedded? We had it so exposed the industrial food system during the pandemic to think that they would rather let animals just die on the, on the property rather than let anybody come in and take them for food. I mean, what is going on? And again, I have to say, it's only been 60 years, 70 at the most, that we have ever imported anything in this country except coffee, tea, and spices. So we can do that again. And in a way, we need to. We need to do it for climate and health, but we really need to do it for taste. Wow. Oh, man. Um, you know, lastly, um, again, I just want to say what, a, what an amazing honor. It's so wonderful to see you, and so great to have all you guys in the room today. I do want to uh, thank uh, my business partner, Donnie, uh, and the entire, uh, the entire team at EVAC, uh, both front, front and back of the house. This was really a labor of love for us, a, a true joy, and, and what, a, what a beacon in our uh, our month of February. It's a great way to finish off the month and sort of welcome spring. So um, it's great to see all you guys. I hope you enjoyed this. Hope you enjoyed the food. Eat more. Uh, we hope to see you here again and much love to you all. Okay. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the Executives Exchange, sponsored by Shure Incorporated. Thanks for listening. If you have Chicago speakers you think we should cover, please send us an email at media at executivesclub.org. The Executives Exchange is a production of the Executives Club of Chicago. Audio equipment for the Executives Club podcast is provided by Shure. Whether you're making a point or making history, Shure lets you sound extraordinary. It's written by me, Margaret Mueller, produced by Eva Pinar. Research and support from the staff of the Executives Club of Chicago. We appreciate you subscribing and reviewing the show from wherever you listen. Feel free to follow the club on Twitter at Exec Club and on LinkedIn. If you have more questions or are interested about becoming a member at the Executives Club of Chicago, check us out on the web 
at executivesclub.org.